You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. I'll start with this because every second counts. Um, okay, so we're, uh, we're going to be uh, in uh, the book of Genesis again this morning. And so if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and slip up your hand. We'll just have the ushers uh, grab you a copy of God's Word. Maybe you forgot it on the way out. Maybe you don't have a copy of God's Word. We want to make sure that we're all looking at it together um, this morning. Uh, we uh, have been learning more about the, uh, Abram. And uh, his life, um, his life as, we, as we've been learning about it, is, is not unlike our life of faith. Um, walking contrary to God, God comes along and, and opens our eyes to see the truth, and we believe and we have faith. And, and maybe in those early days, just as with Abram, there's, there's this great excitement and, and great obedience and you're, you're, you're doing the things you ought to do, and, you, and you're, you're worshiping him. As he comes into the land of Canaan, we see him worshiping him. And then we see him fail in his faith as he kind of relies on his own wisdom, and he starts doing his own thing. And then, and then you know, he, he turns back. He repents of those things, and he, he renews his, his resolve to follow the Lord God, and, and that's a, is a really good thing. And, and, and he, we see his benevolence in regards to his nephew. And then you go from there, and, and you see him um, seeing this great victory the following week. And, or sorry, following week. Yeah. Well, as we studied, the following week, yeah, chapter 14. Uh, I think it was more than a week later, but anyways. But you get what I'm saying. And, and we see him have this great victory, and, and there's like, okay, what's next? You know, like, he, it just seems like it's just getting better and better now. He had that little bit of that hiccup there, but now things are getting better. And, and what we see this week is what we often see in the Bible. After a great victory, there is this, this wrestling of faith that happens. I'm not sure exactly why it happens. It just, we see it happen over and over and over again. And this is, we're going to get into chapter 15 today. We see Abram, he, he's had this great victory, but it's like he, afterwards, it's kind of like he's, it's kind of sinking in what's just happened. Okay, I just took out four of the most powerful kings. I, I really was kind of disrespectful to the king that's closest to me. And, and now is there a target on my back? Like what's going to happen? Am I continually going to be in, in war because of these things? And, and, and by the way, it hasn't just been a few weeks. It hasn't just been a few months, but it's been years now. I still don't have a son. I, I still don't have an heir. And when am I getting the land? And, and he's starting to just really wrestle with these things. And he's, trying to, he's questioning God. Uh, God, what, when, when will these things be? And so he's anxious. He's worrying. He's fearful. Not any different than what we see with Elijah after his great victory over the prophets of Baal. There, there's this, this great victory, and then Jezebel threatens his life. He runs away, and he's sitting under a tree, and he's depressed, and he's like, I just, I just don't want to continue to live. And then we see Israel taken out of the land of Egypt with this great and mighty power of God, and, and even, even going through the Red Sea, and the Egyptians being destroyed, and they get into the wilderness, and they begin to complain and wish they were back in Egypt for some reason, right? Uh, these, these wrestlings of faith we see over and over and over again. So how can our faith be sustained in these times? Maybe this morning you can relate really well to that. You know, you're, you're like, I'm in one of those seasons. I don't really like the circumstances of my life right now, if I'm being honest. I, 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 I've been praying that God would change my circumstances. I've been asking, but, but he's not. He's not changing it. I, and, I, and, I, and I'm like, well, are his promises real? Is his word true? Maybe, maybe I've got this all wrong. Maybe I need to try something different so that my life might work. Now, this is, these are the, the times where our faith is really challenged, and, and, I, and, and I want to just encourage you this morning, if that's where you're at today, you're not alone. Abram wrestled with these things. Elijah wrestled with these things. Great men of faith wrestled with 
circumstances they found themselves in. And so if you're in that place this morning, then be encouraged. But let us learn together this morning from Abram. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into it. Lord God, we are so thankful for this time together this morning. God, you are faithful. You are good. And God, we would be quick to admit that our faith is not always as strong as it ought to be. At times, Lord, we, we doubt. Uh, sometimes we worry, God. Sometimes we, we lose perspective on who you really are, and we, and we begin to, to think on our own and try to figure things out on our own rather than relying on you. And, and yet, God, you are there. And this morning, as we think about your promises, as we think about our faith, God, we pray that you would help us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us. I pray that all of us this morning would, would have a uh, growing awe of who you are, that we would, our, our, our faith would be strengthened today as a result of uh, learning from this chapter in Genesis, and, and that, God, you would lead us and that you would guide us and, and, and be glorified through us. Lord, we, we pray as we study this word that, Lord, your spirit would help us. And so we're asking for that this morning. Would you help also this preacher preach in such a way that your word is un, uh, understandable and is said in a way that brings you honor and glory. It's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Genesis 15. Have you turned there? Genesis 15. Yeah, we're going to read the entire chapter, and then I'm going to help us understand kind of how it breaks down, and then we're going to pull it apart together. This is kind of more of a deconstructed passage, if you want to, you know, not the verse by verse, but more like, okay, we're going to pull this from here, we're going to pull this from here, and you're going to see why as we read the text. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And, the number, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid them in each of them over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful, and, behold dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflict, afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites." So as we look at the text, we see God's promise in verse 1, and then again in verse 7. Then verse 1, it is you will have offspring, you're going to have descendants. Verse 7, you're going to have the land. In verse 2 and 3, Abram's like, help me understand. How is this going to happen? Verse 8, how is this going to happen? And then we see God's answer, his assurance in verses 4 and 5. 
And then we see God's assurance in verses 9 through 21. So there's these parallel texts going on, and they're all kind of connected by verse 6, which tells us that Abram had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He trusted in what the Lord had said about these things. And so this is kind of the, the, the flow of thought, and we're going to, as I said, we're going to deconstruct it a little bit and, and, and look at some of the things that we can be learning here this morning. How is it that my faith can be sustained this morning? If you're, if you're wrestling in faith, how is it that I can continue to walk in faith? Well, my faith is sustained when I believe that God's promises are great. It's important that I believe that God's promises are great, that, that they, they aren't just a, just a proverb. They're not just like, hey, there's some good advice. His promises are great. First, we see that he is my protection. He is my protection. We see this in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Now, Abram, he, he's, he's had the battle, he's won the victory, and as now things are kind of settling in and he's thinking about these things, we see that he is anxious, that he is fearful. He's wondering, how is this all going to work out? Now, I, I, this, this word here for shield, uh, God is... Uh, God, in, sorry, in chapter 14, verse 20, we see that he had won the victory. Here is saying the same thing. I will be your victory. I will be your protection. He left Haran around 75 years old. Next chapter, we see he's 86 years old. So sometime in this time is when this happens. We're not told the exact date. But sometime, not, I guess, as I said earlier, not weeks, not months, but it's been years now. And he's wondering, how will this work? How, how, is, how, would it, how am I even going to survive now that i got all these enemies? And then number two, how will these promises be fulfilled? The reason that he does not need to be fearful is that God is saying, listen, Abram, I am your shield. I'm your protection. I'm the one who will be watching over you. Like, should we take comfort from that fact that God would be our shield? Like, is there anyone greater? Is there anyone stronger in this entire world, universe, existence, greater than God? No, there's no one greater. So if he says he's your protection, you can take comfort in that. You can take peace in that. Psalm 18.30 says this, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. That's you and me too. Not just Abram, but all of us. If we take, we can, if, we, if we trust in him and, and, we, and we believe in him and if we take our refuge in him, he is our shield. There's no safe, safer place than to be in the will of God, to be with God. And so if your kid gets called to be a missionary in Afghanistan, it's not more dangerous for them than if they lived here. There's no safer place than to be in the will of God. You're like, okay, well, I think a few Christians have died the last 2,000 years, Pastor. Is that like, so, so how does this work? How does this play out? Well, let's just think about some of the implications of God being our protector. Number one, our greatest enemy, Satan, we're protected from him. It says in James 4 that if you submit to God and resist the devil, he will flee from you. We are protected from our greatest enemy, Satan. We're also protected when it comes to temptation. There is no temptation to overcome you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So those two protections are ours. And then when it comes to our enemies on this earth, there is no enemy who can overcome us unless God allows it. Unless God allows it. I love what Henry Martin said. You are immortal until God's purpose for you is complete. You are immortal until God's purpose for you is complete. You will not live one second past what God intends for you. Nor will you die one second earlier than what God intends for you. He already knows all your days. And so you can rest in him and his protection. And sometimes we cling to this world, right? Like, oh, what if I die? Well, as a Christian, it's like, best day ever. Because now you're in heaven. There's no more wrestling. There's no more pain. There's no more, you know, any of this, what we go through. 
on a daily basis. But in this world, we can take comfort that, that, you know, like some people right now are like anxious, like what if the government, what if this and what if that? Who cares? You're in Christ and nothing's going to happen to you unless God allows it. So we, we trust in him. He is our protection. Secondly, we see this. He is our prize. He is my prize. It says that if you'll recall last week we were studying uh, chapter 14, the, this king Sodom's like, hey, hey, take the reward. You, take, you just give me the people. You can have all the stuff. And what God is saying here, your, your, war, your reward is going to be great. Now, the ESV says your reward shall be very great. The NIV and the King James Version says, your very great reward. I am your shield, your very great reward. So which one is it? it is, is, is it that God is going to bless Abram with the land, with, with, his, with his children? Well, for sure that's true. Or is it that God is his reward? In Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, it says that God is, will be there, God. And I, th- I, I tend to lean to the second. It's not too many times, if you know me, that I would say I prefer the NIV versus the ESV, but I, in this particular case, I would. And I think, it, I think it, 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 it explains it a little bit better that God is our reward. Do you understand that this morning? And sometimes as believers, we kind of take that for granted. Yeah, yeah, I get to pray. I, get, I have a relationship with him who's the king of kings and Lord of lords and, you know, the one who created. I, I, I get to talk with him every day. But, but, you know, there's all this other stuff that I'm really trying to work on and things that I like. I mean, he is your reward. I heard an atheist recently say that there is nothing that Christians can do that an atheist can't do, morally speaking. Is that a true statement? It is not a true statement, because why? What is the greatest good for every human being on this earth is that they would worship the one who has created them. That is the greatest moral good that you can do in this world, and if you are an atheist, you cannot do that. There is no greater good than having him. And choosing Abram, Abram is blessed to have Yahweh as his God. And if you're a believer this morning, you have been blessed to have him as your God. We were once enemies of him, but now we have been made children of God. We get to call him Abba, Father. There's no greater blessing in all of this earth than knowing God. Psalm 1611, great verse. I encourage you to memorize it. Psalm 1611 David says this, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like how incredible is that? In your presence there is fullness of joy. Are you lacking joy in your life? Maybe less entertainment, less chasing after things, and more time with him. Because it's in his presence that we have fullness of joy. Complete joy is found in him. And, and then it says, and at your right hand, they're what? Pleasures forevermore, eternally speaking. And so when we have him, we have all that we would ever need. He is our prize. It is a joy. It is a privilege to be his children. He is my protection, my prize. And then we see this. He is my provision Verse 6, let's skip down to that. Abram, it says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, there are some who suggest that this is when Abram gets saved. You know, whatever had been going on before, he wasn't really a true believer, but now he's a true believer. I don't think that's a great interpretation. In fact, if you, well, and I'm relying on a lot smarter people than me, but if you understand how the Hebrew is written, you can't actually believe that because it's showing that it's, it's a building upon the faith that he already had. Remember Genesis 12? He left Ur, right? He, called, he, he left the land of Ur in what? In faith, believing that God was, was, was calling him to do so. And so he's already showing faith. He's already exhibited faith. We see that with his nephew Lot. We've seen it last week in his battles Again, he's believing the Lord, though. He is, he is continuing to trust. 
Matthew puts it like this. The text emphasizes that Abram entrusted his future to what God would do for him as opposed to what he could do for himself to obtain the promises. I mean, he's, he's had some time, and he re- he's realizing there's nothing I can do to obtain the promises. That I, I, you know, Abram and Sarai, they, they tried to have children for decades, right? Not working, not working. The land, how is that even going to work? You know, he, he's, he's trying to figure these things out. And so it says in Romans 4.18, in hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. From a human perspective, he's like, how in the world is this ever going to work? But he knew the one who had made the promise, and so he believed. He trusted. He had hope. This is what faith is. Maybe sometimes we need a little bit of a crash course on what faith is, right? We want faith to be tangible. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could see that happening. I, I, could, I could understand how that could all take place. That's not faith, right? Faith is like taking that step and, and like, uh, I don't see a stage, right? If I take that, like, but, but when it comes to God's promises, you're not, you're not just taking a step onto nothing. You're taking a step onto his word. Even though you do not understand how it all may work out, you trust him. And this verse, of course, has been quoted uh, many times in the, in the New Testament. If you remember, we said when we were studying the book of Romans, yeah, book of James 2.23, it's quoted there, Galatians 3.6. And what they're doing is they're showing us, look, God didn't come up with a new program in the New Testament. Righteousness has always come by faith. It has never been by works. There's billions of people still trying to make that work, even today. Trying to, if I just do enough good, then hopefully, maybe, I'll get into heaven. But the, the, the Bible is clear. There is no one who's done good, not even one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And so in faith, we believe that Jesus Christ is enough. We believe that as he came and lived the perfect life on this earth, and, and, and then was placed upon the cross that he took my sin, he took your sin upon himself, and he paid for every last one of your sins by his blood. He took the wrath of God that was due you and upon himself. And then he, he gives you his righteousness. His perfect life is credited to you. And this morning, if you're a true believer this morning, you're like, I do not deserve this. You are correct. How, I, I, but in hope against all hope, again, I love that phrase, I go, hope against all hope. I believe, Lord, I believe that you have forgiven me. I know I don't deserve it, but I know that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. I know why he has come. I know that it was out of your love that you sent him, and I believe this morning that I am your child, and I will be so for eternity, and so I believe. He alone is our provision. That's what we place our faith in here this morning. This is why we gather to worship him. He is our provision. God's promises are great. Do we see that? He is my protection, my prize, and my provision. Secondly, my faith is sustained when I believe that God's promises are guaranteed. Right? There's no fine print on God's promises. Right? No, no, no bait and switch, you know, like, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, it's guaranteed for life. Well, unless... Here's the 17 other things that I didn't tell you about, but it, and I knew you weren't going to read the contract. God's promises are guaranteed. First, we see that he established his covenants. That, that just gives us a picture of his love for us. Does he need to do that? Does he need to make a covenant with us? He does not need to do that. He doesn't need to come down on our level and, and make a covenant, but he does. And we see this in verses 9 through 21. 
The Lord has made the promise. Listen, you're going you're gonna to get the land. Just as I told you back in Genesis 12, just as I told you again in Genesis 13, you're going to get the land. Now I'm telling you again that you are going to get the land, but I want to formalize it in a different way. I want to make a covenant with you. And so he tells him to go get some animals. Pretty specific. Here's three animals. I want you to make sure they're three years old. I want a pigeon. What kind of pigeon? I want a young pigeon, right? And, and, and for you and I, are like, okay, what is going on here, right? Now for Abram, he wasn't like, what's going on here? This was something that was done to make a covenant in Mesopotamia at this time, right? So God's is using how they made a covenant this was not unique to God. This is how they made a covenant at that time. And so he's getting the animals. He cuts them in half. He understands what's happening. All right, verse 10. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other, the birds. However, he did not cut in half. Now, Ross says this. The idea of cutting a covenant literally involved cutting the animal as the symbolism of the oath indicating that the maker of the covenant was staking his own life on this word, right? So, so now the normal thing, you got two guys making the covenant. This is what we have agreed to. Now we're going to walk down the pathway of these animals. And by so doing, we're saying, I bring a curse upon myself if I do not do what I said I was going to do. I bring death Upon myself, just as these animals have been slain in this way, so may I be slain if I do not do what I said I'm going to do. That's the covenant. Now, this covenant ceremony is a little unique, right? Well, I mean, anytime it's with God, you should expect that. But what happens next? Verse 11, the birds, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And you're like, what is going on here, right? What, what is happening? So, so what, 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 what's, there's a physical happening to show us, give us insight to what's about to happen. In verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Now, what's really fascinating is this darkness theme. We see it again at Mount Sinai. When the Lord comes down on Mount Sinai, there's this darkness, there's this smoke, there's this fire, all these things that we see here, and it's showing the presence of the Lord. There's a fear of God that happens as a result of Him coming. There's darkness associated with the Abrahamic covenant. There's darkness associated with the Mosaic covenant. And oh, what happened with the new covenant? What came over the land as Jesus hung upon the cross? Darkness came over the land for three hours. I just love these threads that you see all through the Bible. And God, is, God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And as he's enacting this covenant with him, he's coming, uh, his presence is coming to Abram. And as he comes, he prophesies. He says this, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. Long before Isaac was born or Jacob was born, long before Joseph became second to Pharaoh in Egypt, God is saying, listen, this is what's going to happen. Your people, your descendants are going to be in a land. He doesn't say Egypt here. He just says a land not their own. They're going to be enslaved and mistreated there. Did that happen? Did God's word come true? That's exactly what happened. But, he says, I will punish that nation. They, they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As they're there for that 400 years, we see the, the people of Israel multiplied greatly. And they, as they leave, they, they leave as a great people, a great nation, and then they are given all these things. In Exodus chapter 12, we, we find out that as they're about to leave, God tells them, hey, ask your neighbors for some stuff, right? So they go and they ask for silver and gold and clothing. And this is what we see in verse 12, or sorry, chapter 12, verse 36 of Exodus and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Exactly what God said would happen, happens. And then verse 15, what, what about Abram? What, what's going to happen with him? 
You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. You will not have enslavement in your life. You, you will live a long life. You will live a prosperous life. And then you will die in peace. And then he explains. He gives a little bit of insight. Why is this happening? What is going on? Verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Not, not into the fourth generation it's around 100 years, maybe 110 years. Not, not until that time will they come back to this place. Why? Why is it going to take that long? Why, why can't they just go into the promised land yet? Why is because the Amorites, the sin of them, is not reached yet its full measure. God will be tolerant with them for a time still. He is going to be slow to anger when it comes to these people. He, he calls the, the, the ten nations ultimately the Amorites. And when you see the Amorites, it's not the other nine nations that, he, that are mentioned in verses 18 through 21. They're included when he says the sins of the Amorites. It wasn't just the one group. And so he's just saying they're all together. But not until their sin has reached full peak will I bring judgment. In the book of Genesis, we see in, in chapter 6, when did, when did the flood come? When they were down to one family left who was righteous. Then God flooded the earth. Sodom and Gomorrah, how many families are taken into safety? One family. And so he's saying, same with the Amorites, they have 400 years. God is slow to anger. Uh, so many people are like, well, I, you know, I, I just have this picture of God. He's just like sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. I pounce. I'm going to hammer that guy if he messes up. That's not the God of the Bible. It not, never is that a picture of our God. He is slow to anger. And, 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 and he's showing grace over and over and over again. And there's no one going to be able to complain to God about the fact that they didn't have a chance to repent. Everyone has been given a chance to repent. And why is it that God has not yet come back yet? Anybody, based on our clues so far, anyone got an idea why he has not yet come back yet? Because there's still some people to be saved. The fullness of sin has not yet reached this point. Who, who, could, who could determine such a thing? Well, the God who is over it all, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who knows every heart and mind, who knows everything about us. He knows when the, day, the right day will be to come and to bring judgment on this earth. God is shown to be patient and very merciful. But judgment will come. May we be warned by that. And then we see in verse 17, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And so this, 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 there's this imagery given where God is, is seen as a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch. It's symbolizing the fact that it is God himself who is going through these animals, making the covenant Fire, Ross says, represents the consuming, cleansing zeal of the Lord as well as his unapproachable holiness. Smoke, says Matthews, attends divine theophanies, functioning as a veil and may also signify the Lord's wrath. So God himself is going through and making this covenant. What's Abram doing? He's sleeping. Who's this covenant? Who's making the covenant? It is the Lord God who's making the covenant to Abram. It's not dependent upon him. God is saying, listen, based on who I am, I'm making this covenant and it will happen. The partakers of it. Now, now this is where, where the Israelites kind of got messed up. They're like, well, we're all Abram's children, so we're all in. We're all blessed. God's made the covenant. It's like, well, no, only those who place their faith in me are truly Abram's children. Only they will be partakers of this covenant. So, put yourself in Abram's shoes. You just had this covenant given to you. What would your reaction be? Well, I guess good for me. 
but not so much for my great-grandbabies. It's going to be hard for them. They're going to go through some hardship before they get to land. There must have been a little bit of like, man, this is, a, this is a hard word. But what? He believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. And I was thinking about the similarities between what God tells Abram and what God has told you and I. Anybody read the book of Revelation lately? Now, I, I don't know. You may have a different perspective on things, but when I read the book of Revelation, it looks like the future may be a little bleak. It looks like there's some martyrdom coming. Already has been a lot of martyrdom the last 2,000 years. Seems like that gets ramped up, that evil seems to be winning the day increasingly before the Lord returns. Like that's kind of a downer, right? But what? We trust in him. We, we put our faith in him and we're like, God, you're faithful. You said you would be our protection. You said that you would watch over us, that you would be, you'll carry us through these things. And if you would decide that I am one of those who will be martyred, then, then so be it. Lord, I trust you. You've made a covenant with me. All of you have been, if you're in Christ this morning, you're a part of the new covenant. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. So, God's promises are guaranteed. He makes covenants. We see that with the Abrahamic covenant. We see it with the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then, of course, the new covenant. God's promises are guaranteed. Secondly, he exudes credibility. He exudes credibility. Exude like he displays it. Credibility. We can be certain that the promises of God that he gives, a, that he gives us will come to uh, fruition. Why? Because of his track record. Like, read the Bible. Is there ever a time where God fails? Like, oh, well, there was that one time. You know, he has a pretty high batting average, but there, every now and then God fails. He never fails. And, and he reminds, let's go back to verse 7. He reminds Abram of who he is. Verse 7, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. I I delivered you out of your idolatry, Abram, and I brought you here. Interestingly, just before the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, note the similarities. Just look look down at at verse 7 and see how similar this is. Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I delivered you, Israel, out of Egypt. I delivered you, Abram, out of Ur. I delivered you, Christian, out of your slavery to sin. Look back on your past. Remember what I've done. I am your deliverer. God often points us back to his past actions to strengthen our faith. And can I just encourage you to do that this morning yourself? If you're wrestling, if you're really having a difficult time right now with your faith, get home and start writing stuff down. What has God done for you? How has he blessed you? How has he helped you in the times of trial in the past? So easy for us to forget. We see that happening with the people of Israel over and over and over again. God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful, and they're acting like he's never been faithful. And if we're not careful, we can do the same thing. So I just want to encourage you to think about how God has helped you. If you're a child of God this morning, first and foremost, he's delivered you from slavery to sin. He's delivered you from Satan's power. He's delivered you from the power of death. It no longer has that sting for you. You're waiting for him. He's already done that. Things eternal. But then what about the personal things he has done in your life? We have such a personal, loving God. And you, if, you're, if you stop and you think and you dwell on these things, there's things that you can think of. You're like, oh yeah, I, I forgot that. God, you got me through that. That was a tough season. That was a hard season. But Lord, you got me through it. God's promises are guaranteed. Third, he extends compassion. He extends compassion. This is our God. He is so gracious. He is so loving. He is so merciful to you and I. Note that, that, as, that just to begin with, that when does God come to Abram? When he's having a, a crisis of faith, when he's having a difficult time, that's when the word of the Lord came to him. And when he made his promise, and then Abram spoke up, 
He didn't say, hey, quiet. I made the promise. You be quiet. Did he do that? No. Listen, Abram does this. Abram says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. God, I don't understand. Now, this is the questioning that's going on here. And I think this is really important for us to understand this. It is okay for you to wrestle. It is okay for you to go to God and say, I don't, I don't get it. I'm having a really tough time, God. I'm looking at all the circumstances I'm facing. Like one-third of the psalms are lament psalms. God, this is really hard. And I'm really trying to understand. And this is what Abram's doing. He's, he's being super respectful. Oh, Lord God. Some translations say, all sovereign Lord. Like he's recognizing who God is. I, I, God, I, help me. Still no kid. Still no kid. I'm not, I'm not even... I, 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 I mean, I don't know how much longer I have on this earth, but no kid. And I got this guy, by their customs, by their laws, this Eleazar guy would be like, he's the guy. So how's this going to work? And what God does is he graciously answers him. Sometimes we think to be a Christian, holy Christian, is that we just keep our mouth shut. Well, I know I shouldn't say anything, so I just, I'll just grumble in my heart instead. That's what you wind up doing. Like, and you're like, still don't have any answers, still really difficult. Well, then talk to him. Go to him. Wrestle with him. He's okay with it. Over and over and over in the Bible, he's okay with that. Now, if you come with accusatory, like, God, you're wrong, and, you know, listen to my ways. I'm so much smarter. That's not going to go well with you. Right? And if you're kind of like there's a little bit of wow-wow, you know, in it, that's probably not good either, right? But if you're genuinely coming like, Lord, help me. I love you. I'm wrestling. I need your help. He will help you. Verse 8 does the same thing. Oh, Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? Like, how am I going to get the land? How am I understand these things? And so these are legitimate questions that he has as he's going through his life of faith. Anybody ever have any questions? Right? Anybody got it all figured out? Right? Like, nobody has it all figured out. And so there's going to be times where you wrestle more, but as you wrestle, guess what happens? You grow. And your faith becomes that much more sure. Our God is a compassionate, loving God. I, I love what Exodus 34 says. It is said uh, many times in the Bible, but Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin. If you wanted just like a, a ground zero beginning of like, who is my God? Turn to Exodus 34 and just meditate on those things. Who is your God? He's merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. Like just meditate on these things. His love, what? It's steadfast. In other words, it's always there. He, 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 his, his faithfulness is steadfast. He, is, he keeps love to thousands. And then what? He forgives us our sins. Like, take that to the bank and just focus on that for a while. God's promises are guaranteed because of his character. And I'll tell you, I don't, I don't know personally, I have not found anything better to help me get through the storms of life than to cling to his character to know his character. In the darkest hours of my life, it was these things. It was to know that his mercies are new every morning. And I clung to that. That, that, that though nothing in my circumstances seemed like his faithfulness was steadfast, I believed and I trusted that even in these things, God, you're faithful that, that even though I feel separated for your love right now, I know what your word says, God. It says that nothing shall separate me from your love. So I believe, God. Trust in his character. It is unchanging. God's promises are great. They're guaranteed. Quickly, I want to just talk about this. My faith is sustained when I believe that God's promises are good. And this will be brief because we don't have much time. But do you believe that God's promises are good? 
You think about the original sin, what happened? I do not believe your word is good. I don't believe it, so I'm not going to live by it. That's when our faith goes astray. That's when we're putting our trust in things that aren't worthy to be put our trust in. God's promises are good. So, first of all, they are my present hope. Today, right now, there is nothing better that you can be doing than to be trusting in God's word, in his promises. You think about the best sermon ever written, ever told, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has just given us all this instruction. And he, at the end of it, he says this in Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a, li- a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. If you want hope today, if you want help today to get through your present circumstances, then cling to the Word of God. And what will happen? Guess what? Everybody's getting the storms. nobody's Nobody's having a life like this morning's weather, where it's like beautiful, sunny, and no wind. That's not your life. There's, I mean, Canada's a great illustration of what your life is like, right? Lots of storms. What's going to stop you from being tossed to and fro and, and, and like smote to the ground? It is the clinging of the word of God. That's what we must do. We must cling to him and his word and believe that his promises are true and good, even when my circumstances would speak against that. I'm not walking by my eyesight. I'm, by, I'm walking by faith. And so they are my present hope. Secondly, they are my future hope. God's promises are good. They're my future hope. And we see that in verses 4 and 5. He's like, hey, this is a little illustration. Eleazar, not going to be your guy, right? He's not going to be your heir. Let's go outside for a minute. Let me show you something. Look at the stars. Go ahead and count them if you can. That's how many offspring you're going to have. This will be your future, Abram. Trust me. Your future will be good. Your, your future will be, will, be, will be beautiful because I am over it. Listen to my promise and trust. Now, that's a pretty cool promise to him. What about the promises that have been given to you? Let's just think about a, a few of them. What can you rely on? What are guaranteed? What are things that are, that are guaranteed in your life? If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, first of all, he who began the good work in you will complete it. I don't know. Am I going to make it to the finish line? Well, are you in Christ or not? If you are a child of his, then guess what? You will make it, not because of you, but because of him. Because he who began the work will complete it. Romans 8, 38, 39 says that nothing shall ever separate you from the love of God. No matter what the circumstances you find yourself in, God's love is always there. All things, Romans 8, 28 says, all things will work together for your good. Traffic jams and tragedies are all being used for your good to make you more like Christ. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good for what? For in due season, you will, we will reap if we do not give up. Keep going, keep going. Your future will have reaping. First Thessalonians 5, 23, 24. Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is just, like I, I took like three seconds to think of these things. Like, just get into your Bibles and start thinking about what, as a result of me being in the new covenant, what has God promised me? What do I know my future will have? It's all good. Well, not, you know, you're going to have some problems, but you know what I'm saying. There's so, like, life in Christ is amazing. And then, thirdly, God's promises are good. They are my ultimate hope. My ultimate hope. There is no greater hope than in his promises. And what is going on here in Genesis chapter 15? Let's remember how we got here. Genesis 3, in the garden, God says, there is one who is coming who will reverse the curse. He will defeat Satan. He will stomp his head. 
And so in this promise that he's giving to him, he said, through this line, there's one. There's going to be blessing through the line of Abram. And then we were told in, in, from David that he's going to come from the line of David. And in and, 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 and Genesis uh, 48, we, were to, we find out that he's going to come from the line of Judah. And we keep going and going and going. Christ comes. He fulfills that promise. But it's not done yet. Is there still sin? Is there still death? Is Satan still roaring around looking for someone to devour? All of these things are not yet complete, but there is a day when it is coming. And there will be no more sin. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more uh, crying and, and, and pain in this world to come. There's a new heavens and a new earth coming. This is our ultimate hope. It's not in this life. It's not in this world. It is in what Jesus Christ is going to do. And may we cling to that. This is your future, Christian. And so you might have some hard days. Maybe you're going to have some hard weeks and months and years. But this is our destiny. This is our ultimate hope. Are you clinging to him? Is your faith steadfast? Do you believe that his promises are great? Do you believe that his promises are guaranteed? Do you believe that his promises are good this morning? This is how you will walk in steadfastness. Let me pray. Lord God, we are so thankful for this time together this morning. And Lord, as we take a moment now to reflect on the new covenant, God, we pray that you would just help us to Remember who you are and all that you've done. Lord, we would not live by sight, but Lord, we would live by faith. That we would declare that you are good, that you are faithful, and that we will not trust in ourselves, we will not trust in the things of this world, but we will trust in you. God, I pray this morning for anyone here who has not yet placed their faith in you. God, would you convict them of the fact that, Lord, they need a Savior? Would you help them to see that judgment is coming, even though, Lord, you are gracious and merciful, that there is a day coming soon when you will bring judgment on all of this earth, and then the new will come. And so, God, I pray that every one of us would be ready. Lord, Help us to be faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.